A brand new documentary to mark 50 years of Radio Nogueltacta, Alton's Maridni Wini, and some of Ireland's best loved musicians reflect on how Radio Nogueltacta breathed new life into Ireland's music and song tradition. Maraid explores the role the station played in shaping her own career as a musician and that of many others of her generation and beyond. And on Ahasaram, go will Maraid Linganocht Aaron Glor. You're in Austria, actually, Maraid August. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Apple Gobbo Yes, yeah. Well, you might be you might be as well off in Austria. We're, we're getting it sounds as if we have a bit of Austrian weather coming our way um, in the I next. I think so. Yes. In the next few days. However, I know you're 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 Alton are over there at the moment. You're, you you have a gig yes. coming up, so that that's what you're at there. But however, you're talking that's to right. us particularly tonight, Maria, about um, yes. Kjol Nagel, this new TG Cahar documentary which is all about the influence on Irish music of Radio Nagoyaltikta in fact let's go back because it, it starts I, I loved the way the documentary started out it went right back actually to pre-Radio Nagoyaltikta because 1972 was the founding of Radio Nagoyaltikta 50 years old That's right. uh, this year of course um, it, 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 you go back before that and the way music was in your home and the way you heard music in your own home and locality just give us a flavour of 1960s Ireland and how music was disseminated at that time if you like traditional music yeah well it was quite different to what we know now in Ireland like at the moment Irish music, Irish traditional music has never been as popular it's played daily, it's played nightly in bars and sessions but when I was growing up that was a rare thing and you know you'd be in the house and like I was very lucky that my father played the fiddle Mm. and there was a lot of musicians coming through poets as well and people who write who would write dramas including himself and songwriters so I was very lucky to be in that environment but you know it, it to find traditional music in the 60s in Ireland you had to go looking for it and you had to go to people's houses mm. And I suppose you certainly didn't have that many musicians. I mean, you're, as I said, you're talking to us from Austria today. I mean, yeah. the, the the type of the international nature, I know some of that had started to be there with the chieftains in and around this time. Yes. But, you know, the international yeah. uh, regard for Irish music uh, comes out of this period as well, really, doesn't it? Oh, that's true. Well, you know, going back further, you'd have them... Uh, Tommy Makem and the Clancy's and then of course the wonderful Chieftains Paddy Maloney and uh, of course Shana Rada had established Cawthry mm. Line prior to that and you know you have to kind of see that progression and when I was growing up I would know most young people my age who played Irish traditional music in Ireland you know at that stage but then you know as you go along you know into the 70s, late 70s, into the 80s, you know, that was expanding all yeah. the time and the music was getting more popular. And thanks to Coltis Celtrian for that and the likes of Radio Nagiltartha and, you know, giving people a platform to play music, to play their own music, to play, to sing their songs in the Gaelic language, mm. which was only a once a year thing prior to that. You know, you'd go to the Erectus and you'd hear the songs in Gaelic, but you wouldn't hear them for the rest of the year, maybe once or twice on Radio Air and here and there where the likes of Kieran McMahon who was doing mm. amazing work and 
before that, Seamus Ennis would have sporadic, uh, you know, programmes and um, you'd have maybe the Gay Lane programme on. But it was very, and, and Cayley House, of course, yeah. but it was very, very difficult to get traditional music on radio at mm. that time. And, and you know, and it's, when you think, when you start thinking about that, now I know mm-hmm. that the fear, if the fear Hyola's doing all, I know there's nothing to match it, Damarade, and I know that you won't well, be telling true. me. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad you think that. <laughs> <laughs> if it was somebody else from Askeri, I might be saying something different. Now, let me be honest on that oh, no. front well, as well. You're, you're two-sided then. <laughs> <laughs> Many-sided. Um, <laughs> maybe I'd have to be three-sided because I'd have to get it through all the uh, coastal gale thugs, wouldn't I? At any rate, yes. uh, I, I jest. Well, obviously, but uh, you, yes. you you mention you mention this idea of the, the music that you heard for the most part was the music of your neighbours, the music of those from ar- from around your your, your locality. You, there, there might be the odd um, visit from somebody from far, another part of outside. the country, but it was unusual. I'm guessing. It was very unusual to have somebody come and visit from another part. Like, people weren't travelling as much mm. that time either. And to get someone, you know, from outside our locality singing in, our, in, in the Gaelic language was very rare, to be honest with you. But then you you did have the likes of Seamus Ennis travelling into, before I was born, mm. like into the likes the area of Bidor and collecting music and you would hear his music and I heard people talking about that but you know I missed out on that particular time but then mm. when I was growing up it was all local people and in a way that was good as well because I was steeped in the local tradition yes. but Radio and the Gilt had changed all of that and it made it more accessible, it made us all listen to each other, it made us listen to each other's dialects and we were able to tune in before Radio Nagata, I wouldn't really understand people from Connemara or people from Kerry or people from Anrhein or people from Coulee. Mm. But, you know, the radio helped us all tune into each other and appreciate what was different about us all, you know. You, you tell a lovely story too about because it was April the 2nd uh, 1972 when Radio and the Gaelic yeah. started up and you tell a lovely story about it. everybody was at mass but everybody was in a shock and hurry to get home to, to hear the, <laughs> to hear the launch of Radio and the Gaelic It was a big deal it was a really big deal and you know it was really giving us all you know you're not all left on your own in these little pockets on the western shores of of Ireland. Mm. Like if you look at most of the Gilthards, they're the next step, they're pushed that far west that the next step is into the water. So like, you know, I think, you know, we have to really rethink our language and, uh, uh, you know, embrace it. And the Irish people have to really maybe make a huge effort to make ourselves more bilingual. And, you know, because it shouldn't be pushed into the Western shores. It, it should be more accessible. It should be talked more like it, 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 and spoken more. Sorry, mm. that's my Gaelic coming through there. <laughs> it should be spoken, spoken. And uh, it should be a, a, a language that's, you know, we're, we're not even when we're speaking our Gaelic language, we're speaking in a different way. Our way of thinking is different. Mm. And we should embrace that rather than pushing it to, to the Western shores. And which is Shinnig Ahru, Fuilahar, do you think that's changing at the moment, uh, Maria? Because it, it comes well, up later Shinem, in the. Yeah, go, uh, right, lad. 
well, Sheila Gawalt's Nakata and that taking much in Nakata Kajane Funtis at Telisha Changi. And you higgin much peace of Nagelter that was the Hodges Moaku in Tamai. And you higgin should the Funtis Omlan Telisha really give wagon shit. When, when, when they travel abroad, mm. they realize then, oh, we have something really, really special that makes us really yeah. different to anyone else. Yeah, and the value of it, the value of it becomes clearer in that yeah. respect as well. Yeah. But and, it does and, come and across. Yes, and, and yeah. it comes across in the documentary. Um, I think it's Anya Hensi later, later in the documentary is speaking mm-hmm. about how, you know, when when things started out with Radio and the Gaelica, it was very, very hard to find anybody but an older person who would be speaking uh, Irish. But in fact, Dini Avigaishtikla Radio and the Gaelica, Honig Anchanga, Huhu, the the the, the, cha- the the language came to them. Yes, and you know, if you were listening to the radio to li- to hear the tunes or to hear the songs, mm. you you tuned into the language, and people became, you know, I I know most musicians uh, that of my age group now, and I, I would speak to in Gaelic to most of them, in fairness, and they wouldn't be from a Gaeltard area, you know, mm. and that has become part and parcel of the the music people are willing more to open up and say hello in Irish and all. But it should be everybody's language. It should be it shouldn't be just mm. one side that, you know, it, it should be every every tradition in Ireland should be speaking it. And, you know, we should really bring it alive again because it's really special. And it's also special because it you know, it it's it's the basis of our music, the rhythm of our music, the rhythm of our songs, the the poetry in the language is so beautiful. Like, I mean, we should never lose that. Yeah, I'm going to bring you back in time now a little bit, Maraid. <laughs> I'd say, I'd say you know <laughs> where I'm. Please don't embarrass me now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't. I won't embarrass you. This, listen to this, <laughs> listen to this beautiful young voice singing clear as a bell <laughs> to us. Is a Well, on that name too, on Colleen Ogshin, Mairead Nguyeni. Ogshin, there'll be my Gavian Jig the Goblin Jig, 12. Well, 12. V- v- oh, I was looking for songs and that's the that's the Tory Island version of an Agona Lloyd. Yeah. And and of course, that was the thing, because again, this comes across in the documentary. By the way, I should say, the documentary is on RT1 television. I think I, I, I misplaced that uh, earlier on. But uh, they talk yes. about this. They talk about this in the documentary that it was all about Dini Ochula, Shkilta Ochula and Kjol Ochula. I suppose it was local people, local stories, yes. local music. Yes, and you know, I think that was so important to give those people that were keeping, you know, that were playing, that were playing, that were singing the songs locally, you know, at at maybe some concerts during the year, not very often, but to give them a platform. They they had kept this tradition alive for all of us to enjoy and to, uh, 
you know, to mm. appreciate then when the radio came along. But they didn't have a proper platform to express themselves, you know. And this was a great opportunity to give these just amazing people with amazing talents and an amazing style of singing and playing and talk, you know, to to express themselves. And it, that was one of the main things that the radio has really brought to us into our kitchens. And the other thing that, that we, and we get you visiting several different girls at areas uh, around the country, or particularly along the West Coast, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. we, we see you going and singing with various other artists from different yeah. talks and and you even you have a bit of fun at one stage along the way uh, with uh, with is Misha Ban is not Misha Banfogin who is it that you're singing Banfogin with on Aaron Tra <laughs> Oh have I lost have I lost my read there briefly maybe No just, I, I'm oh, here you. but but yeah I was singing with Sarah Griellish on uh, uh, Tra and Durling in uh, and on the most beautiful day and oh, she, she's just one of my heroes like she's an incredible singer and just a wonderful person and just one of those stalwarts of the tradition and to be able to sing along with her I well I was just humming along mm. to be honest <laughs> but it, what, what it showed us was it showed us how the radio radio on the Gael and the dissemination of uh, traditional music on radio on the Gael made it possible for you from two different parts of the Gaeltacht around on the West Coast to come together and to, to share your music. That just wasn't, wouldn't have been possible previous to that or it wouldn't have been as likely, I suppose. Not as likely. But, you know, people who were interested in the singing, they would have met, we'd say, maybe at the earth yeah. once a year and they would have been aware maybe of the. But now I was able to emulate her we'll say or like I would know her singing so well that I would be Mm. able to just chime in with her while that wasn't maybe so easily done say 60 years ago yeah yeah uh, then mm-hmm. I'm not sure what year this particular whirlwind hit hit Radio and the Grail today, <laughs> but let's imagine it around was was a three o'clock uh, a three o'clock I think when when Ronan McAvoy generally was on. Let's have a listen oh, to Ronan. Incredible, man. yeah. Let's have a listen to him in action yeah. here. Ronan Maki Weewal, Niel Rilkney's very radio Riona, Ronan. He's just a ball of energy. That's Ronan McAvoy. Actually, I heard him doing his cockadoodle oh, there. So it was a show breakfast there, or do a stoke of Goroshig at Coralahar. But, you know, listening to Ronan every day, he was just so. Then, as I said, he got away with. <laughs> stuff in the Gaelic language that nobody you would never get away with it in the English language I'll tell you he was just 
so um, very quirky and mm. fantastic and such a mind, such an intelligent man. And like he made the radio, Radio Nanog, he brought yeah. the young people in and we like everybody was listening to him because he always had something off the wall to say and you know, really, if he was speaking in the English language, he would have been banned years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it was even, it was even at, at one point. I loved the, it. Yeah, at one point in the documentary, it was, it was Winner in the Cowley's voice that we heard at the beginning there, um, just to set yeah, it up. Oh, Marins, uh, yeah, Marins. Yeah, because she, she talks a lot about uh, the kind of effect he had and she talked about bands like the rappers' kneecaps and, and different bands like that. And how, yes. how he actually, he opened up, lo- and, and Skull Lorgon here in, or uh, Skull Lorgon yeah. here in, in Malyaklia, yes. how the, the kind of, the, the, a new style, there, were no, there was no boundary to the genres that could be performed Asquelia. Asquelia. And he was irreverent as well, which mm. was very important for young people. You know, sometimes people are too polite and everything. And, you know, that's boring for a, a young adult. They need a bit of, you know, punch mm. and all of that. And Ronan had that in you know, in, mul- in the multitudes. And he really shifted the whole thing around. I loved, I think he has a huge effect on how the Gaelic language yeah. is perceived today. We're going and to f- our music. We're, we're going to finish up, Mairead Le Hauron, Hauron O'Meave, Nivaglich, Agus Canon Shade Galer, Gokdin, Nilisigum Kevid, Canon Shaw, but Jackner is Stoker, Chamberlain, there was quite a group of you. Shave Quan ni vegli a leg vi mave on the gusaha her shamus, gus brandan, I guess vi mahin, I guess manin nia, I guess vi majilikle the canulikela, I guess vi shagalant, we show where an a hum mave, ihin, kinaldo, a crunu, you know, she's kind of saying, you know, why don't we stand up and speak yeah. our own language? Yeah, I, I, I don't know about you. Like I was emotional watching this today. I can only imagine how emotional it was for all of you to sing. Shas is Khan Gotrain Auron Mangel. Stand up and, and and sing with all your strength. I guess yeah. the the songs of the Irish. It, it's a beautiful sentiment. Was it an emotional uh, thing yes. to perform together? Oh, oh. And always is uh, with Maeve. Like she, she. That's a strong sentiment. You know, stop mm. this being polite about it. No, just stand and speak yeah. it. Even if you only have a few words, yeah. say it and keep keep our keep our. You know, it, it's not just our language. Keep the Irish sensibility, our psyche alive. You know, we have a different way of thinking, and let's keep that alive. You know. Yeah. Well, She's listen, amazing. Yeah, and I'll ask the Mishlash and Aaron Shin and Ish. Mila Buekas has Vatling and Ocht, i uh-huh. 
Wonderful sentiment, isn't it? Shas is con gotrain auron nguel, and that one of the songs that features in the documentary that Maria Nguyenit was talking to us about, Kjol Nguyen. It's on RT1 television, Thursday, the 8th of December. Kjahru and Yigaje, it's quarter past 10 that night. Uh, there will also be a repeat of the gala 50th anniversary concert recorded at Ballinahone earlier this year on Saturday, the 10th of December. And that also will air on RT1 television. Dune, War and Peace, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, a trio of novels once considered unfilmable until they arrived at a multiplex near you. This week, an adaptation of Don DeLillo's supposedly unfilmable 1985 novel, White Noise, directed by Noah Bambosh, Bambach, rather, uh, was being released in cinemas. So what is it that makes certain books so hard to get back onto the big screen and how have directors overcome those obstacles. Declan Burke joins us to talk about why some of these books are translating onto the big screen now and others maybe not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let us start out, Declan. I know this is a how long is a piece of string question. What makes a book unfilmable? Yeah, it is a how long is a piece of string. You know, to a large extent, we're talking about you know, square holes and round pegs here. Mm. So when people make the mistake, sometimes film and novels are both narrative arts. So therefore, you know, the two are almost interchangeable in theory. That's not necessarily the case because what the novel... You know, we never say, for example, you know, oh, uh, Jackson Pollock, the problems of adapting Jackson Pollock for opera, you know, or, or, or a Beethoven symphony for, you know, how do you paint a symphony? Yeah. So people make the assumption that because there are two storytelling art forms yeah. that one should easily adapt to the other. Not always the case. Um, so, for example, you know, White Noise is a very good example. So last night, brilliant novel, sprawling you know, it tries to uh, incorporate all manner of aspects of American society in the 1980s. Is it, you know, is, is that filmic? Is, can we fit that into two hours? Not necessarily, not ne- and certainly not in the mm. way that the novel did. Right. Um, well, <clears throat> let's let's go to maybe Dune, which uh, for years, I think, people consider, this is Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve did this, of course. For years, it was kind of, nah, you're not going to be able to do that. And I think there were several attempts to do it. What, what makes it so difficult or what made it so difficult before it would seem Vino got his hands on it? There were a couple of aspects. Dune is a classic example of a novel that's, you know, too sprawling, too epic. It, you know, it, it's too much world building involved mm. uh, to, to narrow down to the convention of the 90 minute or the two hour film. David Lynch did get it on the screen back in the 1980s. Um, but Dennis Villeneuve, as you said last year, mm. terrific, beautiful, you know, widescape version of, of Dune, teeming cast. And part Dune part one well, might yes, be a hint this, as to why it works This is the him. big cheat, Dune part one. And, and as, as far as I know, Dune part two is in yeah, the camp. We'll, but yeah, and it was a long film. There's going to be equally long film. So yeah, you can get away with, 
you know, they couldn't do that 20, 30, 40 years ago, say, oh, we're going to give you part one now. More of a convention now, perhaps. Uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky, by the way, he, he had a, a version of Dune lined up. The cast would have been Orson Welles, Salvador Dali, Mick Jagger, Gloria Swanson and Alain Delon. Why did that what, film not get made? What kind of money would you pay to see know, that cast on the big screen? Well, listen, um, Charlotte Rampling was part of Dune 1. I think it was a reasonably small part in Dune 1, but I, I think she's much more present in Dune 2. And she, I spoke to her a couple of months back about the film that she was was uh, publicising at the time, and she was very excited about the part two and, and really feels that Vina have got the got the essence of the novel and managed to get that up onto the screen. And I wouldn't say she is a, an actor that would be easy to please in, 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 that, in that regard at all. So let's have a listen to her uh, in action, actually, from Dune 1 um, with Timothy Chalamet. A memorable scene from part one of Dune. How dare you use the voice on me? Put your right hand in the box. Your mother bade you obey me. I hold at your neck the gomjava. Poison needle. Instant death. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box. And you die. What's in the box? Pain. <laughs> Charlotte Rampling there in a scene from doing... And as, uh, so... Uh, Declan Birkin with us this evening talking about the idea of the unfilmable book and that sometimes the unfilmable book sort of becomes filmable because our expectations in cinema have changed and maybe this idea as you said Declan that we can have part one part two who knows maybe it'll stretch beyond part yeah, two Yeah the, the classic example is probably the Lord of the Rings Sean yeah. I mean who would have sat around for nine ten hours for a single version of the Lord of the Rings even if anybody had the capacity to make it but not only we have three Lord of the Rings movies we now also have three Hobbit movies And if you think about I mean, I'm right in thinking that the, the Lord of the Rings books did yes you can buy them they were all six parts as it were because it's in part one part two I think it's six parts, sure. two parts in each of the three books, as it were. Well, you bought one book, then you bought the next book, then you bought the next book. You didn't buy them all in one go. That's true. That is true. I mean, the fans, I suppose, will consume it all in in, yeah. in, in one tranche, as it were. But but that's not necessarily the convention we expect from film, of course. Yeah. So there have been films that have been eight, nine, ten hours long with no numerous intermissions and so mm. forth. It's, it's all about audience expectations. Once once the film was established as a 90 minutes, now we have longer films now, of course, and slightly yeah. shorter and so forth, but the 90 minute film for some reason has buried its way into the, the public's consciousness as this is the length of film because should be. Because it's the right length for a film to be, <laughs> dare I say. You know, you need, you'd have a very good reason to be going beyond it. However, so duration is one aspect of things here. But um, what about the kind of world that a, a film creates or that a book can create? You know, it can describe things, it can, uh, it, yes, the right, a good writer will show you rather than tell you, but there are facilities to kind of jump around the place in a book in the way and, and create a world in a book in a way that you just can't do in a film. Blade Runner, I would would say, is a perfect example Sci of this. Science fiction is a very good example and it's, it's very interesting that you bring that up because, you know, science fiction writers going all the way back to H.G. Wells and so forth, they were imagining worlds that didn't exist and this was the whole pleasure of science fiction. Um, and for, for <clears throat> that very reason, the technology simply did not exist mm. for filmmakers to conjure these worlds uh, into being. 
Uh, we spoke a couple of weeks back about 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was a different kind of film because Stanley Kubrick, who was a technical genius as well as everything else, he was working hand in hand with, with Arthur C. Clarke to bring this vision of, of uh, 2001 to the screen. But something like Blade Runner, which is based on Philip K. Dick's uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, that, that was a really futuristic world in which you know, the, the androids have you know, kind of human instincts and so forth. But it was the world... It it was an earth that was post-apocalyptic and so forth. And and the, the version that came out in 1982, I watched it again a couple of months back. It still looks scarily futuristic. Yeah. Even the sound, the score, uh, Van Gallagher's score, is still spookily, creepily futuristic almost. It's a stunning piece of work that, you know, even 10 years previously, the technology would not have been available to make that film. And yet, even within all of that, the concerns are still the same. It kind of is life, death in the universe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> still, still absolutely. The, the, the same <coughs> concerns as we get in perhaps, well, I suppose, is the most played scene, certainly on radio, from, from Blade Runner. I don't think it needs any introduction. Hmm. Yeah, but here we go. Rucker Hauer at his finest. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time doesn't matter how many times you hear that scene from Blade Runner it's still so affecting isn't it Rutger Hauer as Roy at the very end of the film and of course flick through your Philip K. Dick book though you might you will not find that no. scene therein, Declan. No, you won't, because as you were saying when we were off air, he, he improvised that off the cuff yeah. in front of the camera. I mean, how, how it must have felt standing behind the camera watching that. It must. I'm getting the hairs on, on the back of my neck. And yet it fits into the world of the book. And maybe that's the lesson, isn't it? Don't slavishly try to recreate what's on the page, because that may not work. You might be able to get a parallel in some other way. Well, this exactly comes back to the point we were making about the, you know, the, the square holes and round pegs or vice versa that you know a, a great film isn't necessarily slavish to the original yeah. material and you will also often see in a review for example people say oh we stayed very close to source material and therefore blah blah we saw a a, <clears throat> a kind of rejuvenated or reimagined Jane Austen film there earlier this year and a lot of the Jane Austen traditionalists were kind of outraged that this was quite a modern this is an irreverent mm. and, and I loved it because I think if Jane Austen easy thing to say but if she was living in the 21st century I think this is the kind of attitude because her novels were very irreverent because they were very funny because they were cocking a snook at, yeah. at society Novel <clears throat> that's well that's, absolutely there you go the word is the, the, the hint is in the, the, what, the what the actual form is called there, then there is the other aspect of, of literature and of books I think that it can be a very inner 
you can get into the inner mind of a character because you're allowed to hear and see and read what they're thinking. Yeah. That's that's a particular challenge. And I suppose Orlando, uh, based on the Virginia Woolf novel, is a, is a good example of that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, Ulysses is probably another great example, Sean. Uh, we had two versions of that. Uh, the, the great Milo O'Shea, I think, and, mm. and Stephen Ray have previously played uh, Leo, Leopold Bloom. Um, but Orlando, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, the interior journey is probably the novel's USP if we can be so crude as to say that that psychological interiority of a character Uh, with Orlando (laughs) it's written in the stream of consciousness set over a period of 400 years begins in the Elizabethan era ends up in the 20th century and features a main character who starts off as a man but then inexplicably ends up as a woman now straight away you know you're thinking not a hope of that ever making to the screen but and then yet, you find then you find Tilda Swinton and you're halfway there well this is precisely it it's, it it all depends on the talent as it were um yeah Sally Potter it, the film was 1992 Tilda Swinton was an absolute gift to play both mm. of those roles um now it's not just going to be based on whether Tilda Swinton can you know pull off both genders uh, equally well but that's a brilliant example of a, of a book you're yeah. thinking there's no way we can bring this to the screen and somebody goes yeah. you know hold my beer watch me do this thing <laughs> yeah well here she is uh, Tilda Swinton uh, in the midst of this she is a heroine in this scene at any rate and she's with the poets Swift, Addison and Pope whose opinions on uh, women well I'll let them <laughs> I'll let them express them themselves gentlemen I find it strange You are poets, each one of you, and speak of your muse in the feminine, and yet you appear to feel neither tenderness nor respect towards your wives nor towards females in general. Madam, I have only the highest regard and purest respect for females. I find no evidence of that sentiment in your conversation. Conversation is a place where one plays with ideas, my dear lady. The one forges them quite alone. Quite so. Quite, quite. The intellect is a solitary place, and therefore quite unsuitable a terrain for females who must discover their natures through the guidance of a father or husband. And if she has neither? Then, however charming she may be, dear lady, she is lost. There we go, scene from Orlando, uh, that, that's Tilda Swinton uh, with the poets Swift, Addison and Pope in that scene and maybe less left, say, leave them alone in what they're saying and thinking in that particular case. I'll finish with Trainspotting because this is interesting. I'm going to actually play the opening sequence from, from Trainspotting, uh, which is a little bit of language towards the end of it. But this, this is a, an example where it is literally lifted up off the page this would have you would have thought that this was an unfilmable book as well until Danny Boyle got his hands on it Absolutely. I mean, that, sometimes it's an attitude that a story can be too local and particularly in terms of the language. Yeah. And, and people who've read Trainspotting will know it like it's an electrifying read because it's almost like music on the page the way that Irving Welsh communicates the Scottish or very Edinburgh patois. Yeah. But once it clicks in the back of your mind, it's just a fantastic read. And, and Danny Boyle's version of the film is, is it's, it is an electrifying experience. Yeah, and that opening sequence, as I say, a bit of language towards the end of this for sure. But the, just the, the energy of it sets the whole film off in motion. Choose life. Choose a job. 
Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a fucking big television. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays and electrical tin openers. Choose good health, low cholesterol and dental insurance. Choose fixed interest mortgage repayments. Choose a starter home. Choose your friends. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Choose a three-piece suite on higher purchase and a range of fucking fabrics. Choose DIY and wondering who the fuck you are on a Sunday morning. Choose sitting on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, stuffing fucking junk food into your mouth. And there you have it, the opening of Train Spotting, and it was Declan Burke who was talking to us about unfilmable books, and I'm sure there are more of them out there that we might revisit at another time. When James Heaney's translation of the old English poem Beowulf was published in 1999 and won the Whitbread Book of the Year Award, it brought literary translation to the forefront of the art as a celebrated art form in its own right. Over his writing career, Heaney wrote 101 translations from languages such as Irish, French, Romanian and from poets as varied as Dante, Baudelaire and Pushkin. Now, all 101 poems can be found in a single volume called The, volume called the Translations of Seamus Heaney, which has been edited by Marco Sanzoni, who joins me now on the line from New Zealand. I'm guessing good morning to you uh, in New Zealand, uh, Marco, and lovely to have you with us. The translations of Seamus Heaney, um, 101 works in, in total here. How important was translation, would you say, Marco, within Heaney's overall body of work? Uh, good evening, Sean, and good evening to all, all your listeners. Uh, it's, it's good to be back to Ireland Bay virtually. Um, I think the great sign of a great writer is when he or she engages from the very beginning with translation. Uh, it's another form of writing. It's the other side of the coin is, is exchanging your own writing with the writing that came before you or that is happening around you. So right from the very beginning, it, it was obvious that translation was a very serious writing experience for Shemusini. And Seamus himself spoke about these translations. For him, they were as important as his own work, his own original work. Oh, absolutely. Um, I had a sense, uh, because I followed him for, for 30 years, um, I had a sense that translation was important. But uh, to be honest, Sean, it's only when we started to put the book together that we were uh, gobsmacked at the really the sheer volume. And here you have a phenomenal reader as well as a phenomenal writer. And I've often believed that the, the reader in Seamus, the teacher in Seamus, is the reason why we have a, you know this, this gift, this body of literature in translation ranging from ancient Greek literature to contemporary Romanian poetry. And as you say it there, Marco, it goes from ancient Greek Greek poetry right through to contemporary poetry in several different languages. What was his modus operandi when it came to, to translation? How did he go about it? Because obviously he would not have known all of those languages. Well, I can, I can tell you a very honest answer because um, I've tried to get him to translate many things for me and most of the time you have to say no uh, but on one occasion he did say to me very clearly um, I have to find my way in and um, that's uh, not only uh, confirmation of, of Seamus's well-known humility 
but it's also an indication of how he operated. He would have loved to have uh, a, um, a standard edition of a particular author. So we'd imagine the original text with a parallel English translation, even better if it was in prose, so that meaning would be there, mm. even better if it had maybe no notations. And then, then you're waiting for that way in. And when that way in was either clear from the beginning or originated through reading, then he was away. And that's why his translations stop being translation and become new originals. Yeah, I'm wondering, particularly for you as, as an Italian, to see uh, Seamus Heaney's translations of Dante must be a very interesting exercise because you could, of course, read them in the original language and then look at them in terms of what Seamus did with them. Maybe you could give us a sense of what he did with, with the poem Ugolino, which is it's quite early in the collection. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, I remember vividly reading Ugolino as a school student. Uh, my mother was a teacher. We had the books at home. And little did I know that when I was in Ireland, when I was going through uh, my uh, own experiences, uh, you know, I was in Ireland when, you know, the peace, the peace process um, got underway when the agreement was signed. I started, I took an interest in the travels because that was the background of a lot of Seamus in his writing. So to see that the experience of a father and his children imprisoned in a tower became alive through the sadness of the experience in the troubles and those dying of hunger striking uh, in prison, that shows you how important translation was and is. And also for me, it was refreshing to see how a poet like Shemusini maintained his artistic integrity by talking about the North through the example of Dante, which is a way of saying, here's a story, here's a social commentary, here's what we need to learn without taking sides and, and, and many conversations with him, I always yeah. told him, I admire the way you, you, you maintain your artistic integrity. And so Ugolino is a very powerful example. And when I saw an early draft of the translation in the National Library of Ireland, it was a very moving experience because there's a paragraph in prose there where he clearly makes the comparison between what was happening at Dante's yeah. time and what was happening in the North and and that's very powerful. That's translation at its best. And and the way you've arranged the the collection as as editor here, Marco, is that you have it in chronological order, and it links in with you, the commentaries. Often link in with what was happening with uh, in Seamus Heaney's own life, artistic and personal life at the time, and indeed the, the what the events of the world. Let's have a listen to Horace's "Anything Can Happen." His translation uh, of that particular uh, poem, which is in and around the time of nine eleven, and you just you can hear that the minute. Yeah. You listen to this poem. Anything can happen. You know how Jupiter will mostly wait for clouds to gather head before he hurls the lightning? Well, just now he galloped his thunder cart and his horses across a clear blue sky. It shook the earth and the clogged under earth, the river sticks, the winding streams, the Atlantic shore itself. Anything can happen. The tallest towers be overturned, those in high places daunted, those overlooked regarded. Stropped beak fortune swoops, making the air gasp, tearing the crest off one, setting it down bleeding on the next. Ground gives. The heaven's weight lifts up off Atlas like a kettle lid. 
capstone shift, nothing resettles right. Telluric ash and fire spores boil away. Seamus Heaney reading Anything Can Happen, uh, originally a Horace poem. That's Seamus Heaney's translation, and it's one of the poems that features in the translations of Seamus Heaney, new book from Faber editor Marco Sanzoni, uh, speaking to us this evening. It, it really is when you... How else could you write about 9-11? It's extraordinary how suitable it is to comment in, in that way, Marco. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you might have heard the uh, the old saying, you know, that Adorno said that poetry was no longer possible after Auschwitz. So what, what does a poet do when, when horror strikes? Mm. And, and Seamus um, was reading um, translations, in fact, or existing translation of this particular poem. And that's when out of the blue, out of shock, out of surprise, the poem came to him. In fact, an er- earlier drafts of this poem uh, translate this poem, trans- poetry translation, are titled Out of the Blue. And it was actually, uh, if I can say so, uh, despite the sadness of the topic, beautiful to see the evolution of the poem. And one of the earliest drafts, Sean, is uh, dated the end of September uh, in Bologna, in Italy. He's in Italy with yeah. friends. And then he would go back to Italy, to Urbino, the same year to collect a, a degree, an honorary degree. And both cities, both Bologna and Urbino, have towers of their own. And so the image of the towers, the lesson of Horace, the shock, the awe, the surprise, um, it's, all, it's all there. And you can see very, very clearly that it stops being a translation and it becomes a poem. And in the Robert Lowell Memorial Lecture in 2008, when he talks about this, he does say, I've done something terrible. Well, I've chopped off a stanza here, added another one. And you can clearly see that there was no distinction for Seamus between literary translation and original writing. They're just two sides of that creative process that is that is literature. Well, listen, thank you for sharing so much of your thoughts on this. I know this has been a, a labour of love for you over many years, uh, Marco, and lovely to see it come to fruition in this book. The Translations of Seamus Heaney, edited by Marco Sonzoni, published by Faber.